welcome Dr. Asma. Thank you Dr. Mohamed Hajiya. Thank you so much. Uh, and welcome everybody to this uh, um, um, to this educational virtual session, which is going to be um, uh, about thoracic uh, trauma. Today we have a special guest uh, from Qatar, Dr. Hiba Abdul Aziz. Dr. Hiba Abdul Aziz is a trauma and critical care and acute care surgeon as well. She has done her training in Europe and the state. Uh, she had complete her board of uh, surgery there as well as uh, critical care. Uh, and uh, she is an assistant professor at Northwestern Ohio Medical University. Um, she as well had, uh, she, uh, um, beside her trauma surgery expertise, she also do laparoscopy, robotic surgery, and endoscopy. Uh, and she is the uh, founding governor of the Qatar uh, uh, chapter of the American College of Surgeon. Uh, so she's also assistant professor of, this, of surgery at uh, Will Cornell University in Qatar. So uh, without further ado, uh, welcome uh, Dr. Uh, Hippa uh, to this uh, session. Uh, this session, this uh, platform uh, has been uh, made especially to bridge the gap uh, of learning for uh, uh, surgical resident uh, and uh, those who seek uh, knowledge in that field during uh, the time where everybody knows uh, that, that a lot of um, on-ground activities, learning activities has been seen. So uh, welcome Dr. Heba. Thank you so much Dr. Asma. I would like to thank you and thank all the organizing doctors and the organizing committees and uh, thank you so much for tasking me with the thoracic trauma lecture. Um, I, I, as you guys do realize that each one of these topics is a lecture by itself so I hope I can deliver. So I would like this to be as interactive as possible from the audience. Um, I'm going to present some real life scenarios that I've faced sometime in my uh, training or my career. And I would like um, you guys to um, try and build on the scenario and where it will go um, over the lecture together. So the first scenario, um, we have a male patient. He was involved in motor vehicle crash. Uh, the patient was for low GCS. He was initially dynamically stable on transfer to the hospital. You're waiting because you have been notified. You're waiting in the trauma room for this patient with your whole crew. And then um, the patient was life flighted. So you see the, um, the life flight crew bringing the patient, rushing the patient down. You know, it's not good. And they tell you when we landed, doctor, we lost the pulse in the helipad. So um, I, I can ask questions, right? from the audience? Uh, yeah, I think, yeah, you can go ahead and ask. Uh, but to okay. so who would just like attention to the time. Sure. Um, who would like to attempt to manage this patient? Any thoughts and ideas? What do you guys want to do? Anyone? I can't see anyone, so you're safe. Um, We'll check, the, we'll check the chat and the questions uh, for you, uh, maybe because their mics are muted. Oh, okay, okay. Okay, so I'm not sure if I see any answers. <laughs> All right. So I'll, I'll read some, some of the answers for you. So some people said um, that they would uh, um, that would everyone, so they would do, somebody who said thoracotomy, somebody said initiate CPR, another one uh, said primary survey and CPR, and then A to E approach. Okay, 
Well, all right. So Unless somebody asked. So. Great. So these are all reasonable answers, and I think it's kind of uh, an introduction to our next topic that you you would have guessed. It's it's going to be an editorocotomy. So basically, in in this particular patient, now you have lung trauma. The patient just lost his pulse, so you're a minute out. You're usually, this is a very tough decision when it's a sublum trauma. It's more of a direct decision when it's a penetrating trauma. So you would try and initiate CPR at first. Obviously, there are a couple questions that you have to, to answer and take into consideration. Age of the patient, it, it does factor in. This patient, I can tell you, was we had to guess his age, 50s or 60s. So in the States, this is relatively young, a younger patient. This is a blunt trauma, so that kind of goes a little bit against him. And um, you want to you wanna know, the patient just lost his pulse in the helipad, so he had vital signs. And that's going to be very important because sometimes they bring you a patient who they have been doing CPR for 15 plus minutes, and then they tell you that the last time they had any signs of life was probably like 20, 25 minutes. So let's jump into this scenario. What we, what we did, we actually initiated CPR. I was pushed to impress very hard by my um, residents to, to do an edithrocotomy on this guy. He's kind of on, of on the cusp for age. So we proceeded with an edithrocotomy and let's see what, what that entails. So indications for edithrocotomy, if you have a salvageable post-injury cardiac arrest, so the first scenario, you have a witness penetrating thoracic trauma and you have done CPR for pre-hospital CPR for 15 minutes. Number two, you have a witness penetrating non-thoracic trauma, and we'll know why, and you have done less than five minutes of pre-hospital CPR. Three, you have a witness blunt trauma of less than 10 minutes of pre-hospital CPR. If you can look here, the, thoracic, the penetrating thoracic trauma, they allow you more leeway. They allow you actually 15 minutes. And, and if you were to ask me as a trauma surgeon, I would rather get a penetrating trauma than a blunt trauma. Because usually penetrating trauma, especially if it's a, a low force, a knife, for instance, a stab wound, that's a very straightforward trajectory. The injury is limited, and that's something that you can handle very quickly. Blunt trauma, you're talking about a big gash. You're talking about the shear. You're something that you're ripping out. So a lot of force is distributed over a large area. So you can see the differences. The witness penetrating thoracic trauma, they're giving that less than five minutes because your goal in this situation is something else. You're trying to cross-clamp the aorta, and we'll come to that. To continue with the indications, if you have persistent severe post-injury hypotension, defined as systolic blood pressure less than 60, but that's due to a reason. So not everyone who has persistent severe post-injury hypotension, you're going to do an ethrocotomy on you're gonna do it for an identifiable cause because you're gonna treat that cause. So if it's due to cardiac tamponade or intrathoracic hemorrhage, because that's something that you can aim at, or intra-abdominal hemorrhage or extremity hemorrhage. Another scenario, if the patient is hypotensive because of an air embolism. You would not do an edithrocotomy if the CPR has been going even in penetrating trauma for more than 15 minutes with no signs of life. We all know the difference between vital signs and signs of life. 
when you have vital signs, you don't have a detectable blood pressure, but you do have motor reflexes, you do have respiratory movement, you do have pupillary reflexes. So that's a very important difference to distinguish between vital signs and no signs of life. Or if you have done CPR for more than 10 minutes post-blunt injury and you have no signs of life and your rhythm is asystole, there is no rhythm. Usually asystole is bad. Asystole for no reason, that's a, that's a dead patient. So asystole without cardiac tamponade. In these situations, you are not going to do an thoracotomy. So this diagram kind of lists what we just talked about. You have a patient who is undergoing CPR. Uh, the patient has no, uh, has no signs of life, so you need to determine blunt trauma that has been going on for more than 10 minutes, which we just talked about. You're not going to offer this patient edithrochotomy, where we can talk about dead or not dead. That's a different issue, but you're not going to offer this patient edithrochotomy. Or you have a penetrating trauma uh, to the torso that CPR has been ongoing for over 15 minutes or the non-torso with CPR for over five minutes. You are not going to offer them an edithrochotomy. Outside of these scenarios, you can, okay? So if you have a cardiac rhythm and um, uh, you have a cardiac rhythm and there is tamponade, so you, then you have identifiable goals. And just to save time, I'm going to describe, I was gonna ask about, um, because you guys are muted, it's, it's gonna take time for you to, to type. I was gonna ask about the procedure itself. So. Bear in mind, ED sarcotomy is not something that you take lightly. It's probably the most intense trauma procedure that you're going to do, one of the most intense surgery, surgical procedures that you're going to do. It's not a procedure that you do for the first time by yourself. Invariably, we are doing it in the, in the ED. Most likely, the most likely scenario, you are the only one who, has no, who knows how to do this procedure and everyone else. It's just like a chaotic scene because they haven't seen it before and they're actually calling each other to come from the floor because there is an edithrochotomy going on, so go watch it. So it's ultimate chaos, ultimate disorganization. So it's a very stressful procedure. And you have to do it for the right reasons. So that's extremely important. The most important decision is not the, the incision or how to do it, it's whether the patient warrants an edithrochotomy or not, whether you're gonna do it and commit to it or you're not going to do it. It's usually done with a left anterolateral thoracotomy incision. The only scenario, you could do it from the right side, but that's the only scenario is you have a penetrating wound to the right side. That's the only scenario that you're going to do it on the right side. And you can extend it both ways. So usually left anterolateral thoracotomy, you, extend your, you can extend your incision by cutting the sternum. Trauma shears cut the sternum excellent in an excellent way. You go down, you go through the skin, the muscle, and then you spread your ribs. And you're now looking at the heart and you're looking at the lungs. Um, in our patient, just to go back to this patient, so one of the scenarios was tamponade. So we did do an edithrochotomy. The patient did have some evidence of tamponade. He had a moderate amount of, um, of blood within the pericardium. You do a pericardiotomy, you do it longitudinally. You look, you look, you will find the phrenic nerve and you go along the side of the phrenic nerve. You never do it transversely because you're going to cut the phrenic nerve. You don't want to do that. You release the blood from around the heart. 
that usually helps with the physiology. Some, some people would do an open heart massage. You can do it with, your, with the, the palms of both hands or you can do it with uh, internal paddles. You can imagine it helps uh, to do an open heart massage because with a closed heart massage uh, or CPR, you are basically delivering 25% of the blood of the cardiac output and you're delivering up to 10 to 20 percent only of the cerebral perfusion you can only maintain some sort of life for about 15 minutes when with with a, a close cardiac massage so that's another advantage for thoracic hemorrhage if you do identify bleeding from the lungs what you could do um, you can do um, you can cross clamp the hilum of the lungs you can do um, a hyalur twist. You might need to take down the inferior pulmonary ligaments, but that's another way to control thoracic hemorrhage. Um, for an air embolus situation, you also would cross clamp the hilum. Um, you cross clamp the hilum, um, and then that will prevent the, the, uh, the influx of the air into the pulmonary venous system. And then you can put the patient in Trendelenburg position. And um, in that situation, you can aspirate from the ventricles. Um, you can cross clamp the aorta for external bleeding, for extrathoracic bleeding. Some people do that maneuver. I personally, some people do that maneuver specifically. They do an edithrocotomy specifically to cross clamp the aorta. I personally don't register to that school. Um, it's not wrong. Many of my colleagues do it, but I don't personally do it. And remember, the patient is pulseless. You don't feel anything the way you find the aorta. You go down to the spine. You're trying to cross-clamp the thoracic aorta. You go down to the spine. You feel the spine and the structure that sits above the spine is the aorta. So you either compress it with, with your hand, which is going to be most likely, or a vascular clamp, which is very unlikely that you're going to find that in the ED. But you can, you can clamp it. Like I said, our patient was a blunt trauma, so there wasn't any evidence of injury per se, or a hole in the heart. If you do get the situation of a penetrating trauma, what you could do, you can stick a finger in and you are going to the heart with, the, with, the, with your, with riding basically with that patient, with your finger inside their heart. Or you can stick a Foley catheter in and inflate it. Or you can try and suture it, but these are very suboptimal situations for to do a suturing in the heart. So that's, these are the most of the scenarios that you're going to encounter with your ED thoracotomy. How to do it and the different applications. Um, and the one thing that we need to remember is, like I said, it's not a procedure that you take lightly. This, it's, it has a lot of um, possible complications to the, to the staff that's doing it. The seroprevalence rate of HIV for the, in an edithrocotomy is 4%, and usually the patients who need it the most, the, the penetrating trauma patients, their seroprevalence rate is 14%. The drug users, they have a seroprevalence rate of 30%. So it's not something that you take lightly, and you have to be extremely cautious about not hurting yourself or others around you. It has a lot of hemodynamic um, sequelae, it has um, a lot of metabolic sequelae because once you cross clamp the aorta, for instance, especially if you do that for over 30 minutes, you're basically reducing the femoral artery flow to 10%. You're reducing it by, by 90%. You're reducing abdominal visceral flow by um, 2 to 8% of the baseline. So 
And when you, when you release this ischemia, remember the ischemia reperfusion syndrome, so that's, that's going to have a, a lot of, um, a lot of uh, impact on the patient. Okay, um, one thing that I need to mention is the Reboa. Um, it, it might be available in some of your institutions, the resuscitative endovascular balloon occlusion of the aorta. It has been around for a few years. It's, it's um, purported to uh, replace the edithrocotomy and there is currently um, a guideline that's being developed by the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma studying um, the, or comparing the Reboa to edithrocotomy and trying to figure out which one is, is better. I'm gonna to move to the next topic um, of blunt cardiac trauma. So again, uh, our patient, when we did the, the pericardiotomy, we relieved the, uh, we relieved the um, blood from around the heart. He did, it was a blunt trauma. So there was a blunt cardiac trauma. I don't wanna see cardiac contusion because the term blunt cardiac trauma has replaced cardiac contusion. And that's a spectrum. It could be a myocardial bruise down to a cardiac rupture which is devastating. So the cardiac, the, the heart can rupture in several places. It can rupture in the left ventricle. You don't see these patients because they die on the scene. It can rupture in the right atrium or in the septum. Usually in a blunt trauma, the heart ruptures towards the apex. And the mechanism for rupture, it's, it's um, uh, multifactorial. It could be like different reasons. Um, could be compression or it could be um, an increase in the enterothoracic pressure, raising the pressure within the, the chambers, or a hydraulic pressure being transmitted from an increased pressure within the abdomen, or just a direct injury by, by a rib, uh, or a shear injury at, at positions of, um, uh, that are static. So clinically significant lung cardiac injuries can present this valvular dysfunction, and by that, I mean involvement of the leaflets, the cord, the tendine uh, rupture, uh, the papillary muscle, the canter. It can present with coronary thrombosis or cable avulsion. And then you have, if you have septal rupture and valvular dysfunction, these are usually initially asymptomatic. You don't even suspect them unless, unless you really know your history and know um, the exact mechanism, and that's extremely important. Always try and get as much history um, as you can for your, from your EMS crew um, during um, in a trauma setting. It's, it's very important because that will tell you whether this was a mild, nothing um, injury or it's, it's something really severe and you have to take precautions. So they're usually asymptomatic and then they, they progress to heart failure. Patients present with a lot of um, rhythm disturbances, but the most common rhythm uh, that they present with is actually sinus tachycardia. Uh, they present with sinus tachycardia, but they can also present with uh, bradycardia, sinus bradycardia. They can present with third degree block or um, second degree, third or first or second degree AV block. So there is a lot of rhythm disturbances that can happen. The most um, common dysrhythmia though is the PVCs but they can also have VTAC, VFib, um, or SVTs. Usually the presentation is within the first 24 to 48 hours post-injury. Um, the diagnosis is made by uh, doing an EKG. It should show you these rhythm disturbances. Um, cardiac enzymes are no longer uh, done unless you're suspecting coronary artery disease on top of that. 
Um, you fast would diagnose it by showing you if there's pericardial effusion, uh, a transthoracic echo. It can help. It's better than a fast with a, with a precordial window. Um, but at the same time, it could be challenging. It's, it's external. The patient is, has already sustained a lot of bruises. It can be technically um, challenging to, to do. It could be painful. So really the, the key to the diagnosis is doing a, a TEE. Um, and it can clearly show you the valvular, um, valvular valves and the septum area. And also, especially in your elderly patients who have a lot of ventricular dysfunction, the ventricular dysfunction can be sometimes mistaken for, for these um, traumatic lesions. So the TEE can, can differentiate between the two. So going back to um, our patient, we did, um, we did do, um, after we, we finished the edithrocotomy, um, he's, he, he, um, once we, he went to the ICU and once he recovered a little better, we did do a TE in that patient. It didn't show, um, it didn't show much sequelae. I want to talk about intrathoracic injuries now. So blunt intrathoracic injuries, they constitute 8% of all trauma admissions um, and 28% mortality. While penetrating intrathoracic injuries, they constitute 7% of all trauma admissions and 7% mortality. So you, you can clearly see it's much better to get a penetrating injury than a, a blunt injury. On physical exam, you can see distended neck veins, tracheal deviation, sub-Q emphysema. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure you guys are thinking now that this, is, this describes Tension pneumothorax, okay, and that's these are this is all the area that I'm going to mention the tension pneumothorax in, and not more than two lines. You everyone should know tension pneumothorax, how to diagnose it, and how to treat it. Okay, so these are some of the cardinal signs for suspecting tension pneumothorax. The patient is in respiratory distress. You are not hearing any breath sounds. And the treatment to that, you do not get a chest x-ray. You do not intubate the patient. This is when you kill the patient. This is when B precedes A. That's very important. So the treatment for that is needle decompression. Second intercostal space, midclavicular line. You stick a needle there and you decompress it. You have to be very careful with your technique because it's not something that you take lightly. We have seen some injuries from... Um, I'm sure very well-meaning uh, EMT staff, but overzealous with their diagnosis. And they, they, they sometimes, you know, by actually needling a, a, a chest that doesn't have a tension pneumothorax and the, the lung is fully expanded, you actually can cause a pneumothorax. And hopefully, you know, it, it, sometimes it can be a tension pneumothorax caused by by that needle injury. So you, you have to be a little careful, a little ju judgmental in, in making that diagnosis. But if you recognize, unless you recognize the need for that, you, the answer is a needle decompression and followed by a chest tube insertion. Get your chest x-ray later. But this is, this is how you should handle it and you should never intubate this patient. So some of the other um, presentations, chest wall instability, absent breath sounds or muffled 
um, or muffled heart sound. Your diagnosis is like with any trauma, hopefully you are going to get an ABG or a VBG. You're, you're going to do an EKG. Um, you're fast because you're looking for, again, pericardial fluid. Your chest X-ray, it will clue you in to the, the diagnosis. Um, if you see haziness on, on one hemothorax, you can suspect, especially in the setting of a trauma, you should suspect that this is bl probably blood. This is a hemothorax. You might see a pneumothorax. And then in this day and age, when we do pan-CT for anything and everything, the patient will invariably have gotten a CT of the chest. Um, and talking about that, I want to talk about pneumothorax and a hemothorax. So in a nutshell, if you have a pneumothorax in a trauma patient and you can see it on the chest x-ray, you can see it clearly on a chest x-ray, don't even think about confirming that with a CT. You might, the CT might be in your algorithm anyway, but if it's big enough, do not doubt yourself. If it's big enough that you can see it on a, on a chest x-ray, go ahead and put a chest tube in that pneumothorax because that is big. The chest x-rays are not sensitive for pneumothorax. They're not that sensitive, especially if your pneumothorax is anterior or posterior, you most likely are not going to see anything. And then you go to the, you go to, um, uh, to the scanner and you're surprised by this like humongous pneumothorax that none of it has shown on your, on your chest x-ray. So if it's, if you can see a pneumothorax clearly on a chest x-ray, it's real. It's there, put a chest tube in it. It's big. Put a chest tube in it. Um, when you, when you're, when you actually, uh, just because I mentioned the scanner, when you do go to a CT scanner, make sure, and you have put a chest tube in your pneumothorax, especially if they were big from before, make sure that your chest tubes stay on suction. That is extremely important. We have had patients arrest in the CT scanner because what happens during transfer, the, the tube, the chest tube gets, gets clamped. The patient gets to the CT scanner. No one remembers to unclamp this, the chest tube and your patient, before you know it, is there for like about 30 minutes and this pneumothorax is building and building and building. So very importantly, to maintain suction anywhere besides your transport. I know it's very hard to maintain suction, suction when you're transporting the patient. It's very important to maintain the suction when this patient is um, ecstatic or, or has reached somewhere. That's extremely important. If a pneumothorax is very small, or you can see, you will see a very small pneumothorax on a CT, it's debatable. You know, if it's really small, you can, you can decide to follow it and, and you have to um, observe and you have to do serial exams and you have to do repeat chest x-rays. The challenge becomes when you really cannot see it on the chest x-ray in the first place. In this situation, you're basically looking at the, the patient's overall clinical condition every day, and you're looking for it to develop on the chest structure. Because if, it's, if you can see it now, you didn't see it before, but you can see it now, it's getting bigger. And now you need to make a decision whether you want to watch it a little further or you want to put a chest tube in. Um, with regard to, um, so yeah, um, patients who are going to the OR for, for whatever procedure and you have seen 
a small pneumothorax on a CT scan and you are, you're kind of on the cost, should I put it? It doesn't really warrant a, a chest tube, but now the patient is going to be under um, positive pressure ventilation. This is a patient that if you have a good team communication between you, the anesthesia and the other team who's taking the patient, if it's your team who's taking the patient, that's, that's fine because you know what's going on. And once that patient, or if that patient decompensates, you're sticking a chest tube in them. But if you, if it's not you who's going to be operating on this patient and he's going to be gone into the OR land, you really need to have a very clear communication. You need to tell your team that if this patient starts decompensating, this new thorax has expanded with positive pressure ventilation, this patient needs a chest tube to be placed um, in a stat. With regard to um, hemothorax, it's a small hemothorax is managed very similar to, to a pneumothorax. You can observe it, you can do serial exams, and you can do repeat chest x-rays. It's very challenging to diagnose a hemothorax on, um, on the chest x-ray because oftentimes you can mistake it for atelectasis. Oftentimes we say, oh, this is atelectasis. We do a CT chest and then, wow, it's, it's uh, like at least over 500 cc's of, of hemothorax. So to differentiate hemothorax from atelectasis, it's very difficult on, its, on a chest x-ray. This is where your, your CT is going to be extremely helpful. So small hemothoraces, you can follow them. Larger, moderate or large hemothoraces, you need to put a chest tube in. You definitely need to put a chest tube in because remember blood will clot around the lung and it will form a fibrothorax and it will entrap the lung. So you really want to try and drain that blood as much as, as much as you can and as soon as you can. With regard, so the treatment is chest tube so far. There are certain cases that were in surgery. Um, early in the presentation, a massive hemothorax defined as uh, 1.5 liters of blood or an output of 200 to 250 um, uh, cc's of, of blood over three hours. That is going to, that is defined as a massive hemothorax. And that blood is not going to stop. And there is a, a, a linear correlation between the amount of interthoracic bleeding and mortality. So that's a patient that needs to go to the OR. No chest tube is going to solve your problem there. Or if a patient 24 hour output is greater than 1.5 cc's, that patient is actively bleeding. Or the hemodynamic instability is attributable to the thoracic injury. You really need to, to go and explore that patient to try and figure out what's going on. And don't be fooled by chest tube. So you have to be, another point you have to be very careful with because blood can clot within the chest tube. And you look at the chest tube output and there's nothing or it's like minimal and you're very reassured that this patient is stable. It's, it's not coming from, well, the patient is not really stable, but it's not in, in his chest. Don't be fooled by chest tubes. They have fooled so many people before until the patient's arrested. So make sure that your chest tube is working Make sure that you can see that your chest tube titling. These are very important things. Make sure the blood is not clotted within your chest tube. Late indications to go to the OR, retained hemothorax. So there's about 5% or a little more than 5%, no matter what you do or how you, you have drained this pneumothorax in the first place, or hemothorax, I mean, in the first place, they're going to, to have a, a retained hemothorax and these are patients that need to be taken to the OR to try and, um, and deal with it.
usually with a, a VATS procedure. Um, air leak is another reason to go to the OR. Air leak that has persisted for over seven days, you need to go and, and sort out what the problem is. You've had a missed injury or pleural space infection that you have developed an impairment. This is one of the worst um, dreaded complications of a retained hemothorax. The patient is going to develop an impairment. Dr. Hiba, just a question. Sure. There's some questions from the panelists. Would you like to answer them now or after the lecture is done? Um, I, I cannot see the questions, but I'm happy to do either. I suggest, um, yeah, I, I, if I may suggest, actually, we'll take two questions from uh, the audience. There's one question about occult pneumothorax for those who are on um, mechanical ventilation. So this would be one question, uh, if you may answer. And then uh, the second question uh, is about prognosis for uh, patients who undergo idiothoracotomy. So if you could answer these two questions before we move on to the rib uh, fractures. So with regard to the occult um, pneumothorax, if your patient is on positive pressure ventilation and you're able to do to, to clinically observe this patient and do serial exams on the patient and do serial chest x-rays because your patient is already on positive pressure ventilation. So I'm assuming that this is a patient in the ICU. So this patient is invariably go, going to get, um, is going to get a, an x-ray, a daily x chest x-ray. So as long as, um, as I mentioned, as long as it's not increasing in size, you can still continue to manage this patient. And the positive pressure ventilation by itself is not an indication um, to, to put the chest tube in because most of these patients actually, when, when we studied them, the, the, the pneumothorax doesn't, doesn't get bigger with the positive pressure ventilation for most of them. So if you can provide um, closed monitoring for this patient, both radiographically and clinically, you do not have to put a chest tube in that patient. So this is the first question. With regard to the prognosis, thank you. Um, the, uh, this is a good question for the um, edithorocotomy. Um, for penetrating trauma, the, the survival rate is 10%. For blunt trauma, it's 1.4%. So you can see how dismal it is. And a lot of these patients, even those who survive, despite this extremely dismal survival, a lot of them, um, they have neurologic sequelae, significant neurologic sequelae. So they survive, but unfortunately, they're, they're vegetative, in a vegetative state. Um, this brings me just to, to try and, and conclude the, the scenario. So um, the patient that I started with, so he did have bilateral hemosauruses. We put just tubes in him in the ED. We then took him to the OR. We revived him, took him to the OR. We, we tried to close his chest. It didn't close. Um, there is an entity that's called um, uh, enterothoracic hypertension, and that, that is actually real. So we left the chest open. Uh, we just put a vac in it and we came back another day. He did actually, uh, we managed to close the chest. He did survive um, his injury. He did make it out of the hospital and he was an IT uh, person. Who was, he, we worked with computers and he went back to his job. It did take some time, but, but he went back to normal. So, so that, was, um, that was a good save. But th this is, again, you have to remember this, the, the, the survival is 1.4%. Um, Dr. Hippa, thank you for answering these two questions. Uh, if I may ask you to increase the brightness, brightness of your screen, if that, if that is possible. 
uh, and then if you could proceed uh, with the um, with the with your um, next uh, uh, topic, we will keep taking uh, questions from um, from the audience by the writing, and um, uh, uh, between um, every topic, we'll we'll ask for you some of the questions that we receive from the audience. Thank yeah, sure. You. Like I said, I cannot see the questions, so please stop me whenever um, you feel that they are piling up. Okay. I, unfortunately, I think this is like the brightest. <laughs> The brightest I, I okay, can. Okay, that's okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Sorry for that. As, so, as long as everyone can see the lecture clearly. Yeah, I, can you guys see it clearly? I, I mean, I don't have a problem, but can you guys see it clearly? I yeah. Hope. Okay. We, we can yeah. see. It's like there's a green shadow, but we can see. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they're, they're they can see it. Perfect. So, um, proceeding on to, to rift fractures. Um, I'm not going to spend too much on them. I'm just going to, um, actually, before I do that, um, since we're talking about hemoneumothorax, I just want to say a couple words about pulmonary contusion. Because usually in a blunt trauma situation, or it can happen in a penetrating trauma situation, um, a, 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 the patient can suffer from pulmonary contusions. And these are basically bruises to the lung. And it's really, uh, is not, not a very understood um, a progression. Some some patients you see uh, these like huge or large pulmonary contusions, and then they resolve by the next day. And in others, they barely have any contusion, and they blossom severely the next day to the to the point that the patient can develop fulminant ARDS and can require ECMO. So it's it's really not very clear why would would someone uh, just like why would it flourish in someone and disappear in another person. But one of the, one of the main um, uh, management issues with the pulmonary contusions, it's you really have to follow that patient very clear, very, very closely. And you also need to be very judicious with your, um, with your the administration of your IV fluids. You, these are patients that you are going to treat them like traumatic brain injury and you know, you don't give them too much IV fluids, these are patients because that can make the pulmonary contusion really blossom. Um, so this is one of the, the management things for um, pulmonary contusions. I'm gonna to proceed to the rift fractures and um, uh, like I said, just very briefly, the morbidity and the mortalities increase with age and this, is, this has been proven in two studies, one by Bolger and one by Holocomb and they notice a correlation between the negative outcomes and age uh, between the negative outcomes and age and number of fractures. They found that patients who are 45 or, or greater uh, in age and uh, have more than four rift fractures, their, um, their ICU um, length of stay, hospital length of stay, um, uh, pulmonary um, complications, um, all of these actually do increase significantly. Flagellatal um, had an notice an overall mortality of 10%, and this increased for each additional refractures. And in some studies, they found that the pneumonia rate was less than or equal to five ribs was up to 5%, and then that increased um, to about like eight or 9% once you go to um, six or, or greater uh, refractures. Uh, the management of refractures is analgesia, and there is a guideline by um, EAST uh, that compared 
epidural anesthesia to opiates and compared multimodality, um, you know, with non-steroidal Tylenol to opiates, and they found um, with they made condition recommendations that the epidural anesthesia and um, and the multimodality anesthesia is better than the opiates by themselves. Another um, uh, another management modality is the fixation. And again, there in a, in another um, guideline by East, they compared um, refixation with regard to re the reduction, the outcomes of decreased ICU length of stay, decreased hospital length of stay, decreased pulmonary complications. Um, they compared them um, in patients who had a flail chest, and they they showed the condition or they came up with a condition recommendation for. Um, for refixation in flail chest. They could not come with a recommendation for patients who do not suffer from flail chest. Moving on to clavicular fractures. These are among the most common injuries in the upper extremity. Generally, they heal without major functional limitations. They can be associated with serious neurovascular injuries. The patient will present with pain, reluctance to move the shoulder. Uh, the diagnosis is done by an inspection and palpation. You can feel the, the fracture. Um, you AP uh, x-rays of the shoulders are, are usually pretty uh, good, but you may need additional oblique views to diagnose those fractures. And the classification, um, they're classified into medial, uh, which are very rare, that happen in the medial, um, they're classified anatomically. Um, and the treatment usually symptomatic. In the middle, they account for 80% in the distal part. Um, it can be associated with an injury to the coracoclavicular ligament and non-union can be one of the complications. The treatment is sling mobilization or a figure of eight bandage for six weeks and then after that you can remove it and the patient can start normal exercises uh, after about eight weeks. Um, surgical treatment is indicated in displaced fractures um, to the lateral clavicle or a fracture of the middle third with greater than two centimeters of shortening or open fractures or compression of the skin by the edge of the fracture, or symptomatic non-union or fractures with associated neurovascular injury of load in shoulder. And by that, we mean injury to the glenoid uh, process. And that makes, that kind of disconnects the, the skeleton uh, from, from the extremity. Um, by surgical treatment, I mean a screw fixation um, or um, uh, uh, IMing that, that uh, joint or a plate in it. Um, there, there was also sternal fractures, and I just want to uh, mention the sternal fractures in not so much the sternum fracture itself, because you handle that with analgesia, but the, it can be a harbinger for a more serious injury, uh, either to the heart or to, to the aorta, as we will see later. A sternal fracture by itself, a straightforward sternal fracture is something that you just you handle. You just wanna make sure that there's no injury to the heart. You do, you treat it like a blunt cardiac uh, trauma uh, case and, um, you, or an injury to the aorta. We'll talk about that later and you'll manage. If there is none of those, you'll manage it symptomatically. Um, One question, um, which is um, rib fixation is only for flail chest. I guess they're asking about the indications of rib fixation or if rib fix fixation is a modality for the frail chest treatment. That's a so question. So rib fixation, um, yeah. So uh, 
I, I would, especially those of you who are interested in trauma, it's, it's extremely, it's very good to know, um, to know your trauma management. It's, it's very important because one of the, the fields in surgery that has a lot of guidelines, and I think that's a blessing, is, is actually trauma. So ripsification has come, has come of as a procedure um, to try and decrease the, the pain, uh, decrease the, the need for analgesia, improve uh, the ventilation of the patient, decrease the need for tracheostomy. So it has emerged as, as this procedure. There was a lot of disbelievers and some believers in it. And people who do it and do it frequently, they swear by it. And there are some people who still don't, don't do it. But it was um, the guideline, I think it was produced, uh, if I'm not mistaken, 2016 uh, by East. And that actually looked at thrift fixation, um, the outcome of, of thrift fixation in flail chest versus, or, and the outcome in non-flail chest. And they, they usually, when they develop these guidelines, they, they follow the PICO questions, population intervention, comparator outcomes. And the outcomes that they looked at were ICU long, lengths of stay, hospital lengths of stay, uh, the need for mechanical ventilation, the need for tracheostomy. So they found that it made a difference in patients with flail chest. If you fix those ribs, those outcomes were better they could not find the difference where rib fixation, or they could not find that rib fixation made a difference in patients who did not have a flail chest. Does that answer? I think yes. Okay, perfect. Um, uh, should I proceed or do you guys want to do another question? It's up to you. Let's go ahead, let's proceed. Sure. So um, the second case scenario is a uh, 28-year-old. This is another real case, uh, unfortunately a sad case. 28-year-old um, male who was involved in an MVC. Uh, his GCS was 15, vital signs were stable, had some chest bruises, his chest X-ray uh, showed a widened mediastinum and a left hemophorax. So I'm, I'm sure you guys are all guessing because, uh, well, there's no guessing. I said band CT showed an aortic rupture, okay? So, um, Talking about aortic injuries, they uh, happen in 10 to 15 percent, 10 to 15 percent following um, MVCs. They usually happen in the proximal descending aorta, um, distal to the takeoff of the left subclavian. Uh, most of the time, 54 to 65 percent, this is where they happen. They can also happen in the ascending aorta or the transverse aortic arch in 10 to 14 percent. And they can also happen in the mid to distal descending thoracic aorta in 12% or can involve multiple sites in 13 to 18%. Um, the mechanism can be blunt or penetrating. Clinical findings can be upper extremity hypertension, unequal blood pressure pulses in the extremities, external evidence of major chest trauma, intrascapular murmur, palpable sternal fractures. Again, we have to be careful with the sternal fractures, palpable thoracic spine fractures, left flail chest and hypotension. I put hypotension last because this is very important, okay? So if you guys take one thing from this lecture, please take, please take this. If you have an aortic injury, you are not hypotensive because of your aortic injury. What happens with the mechanism of, of an aortic rupture, it can, it can be, um, uh, partial thickness, and it, it can be similar to aortic dissection, but usually it's a full thickness rupture. And the aorta 
and that it's not the adventitia tissue that's that's holding that or tamponading the, the rupture it's actually the parietal pleura of the lung so if your patient is unstable or you know if you, the patient is unstable it's, it's hypotensive the the usual mechanism of this or the usual progression of these injuries they're either contained and they're tamponaded or they rupture and you die sorry the, the patient dies there, it's not hypotension because of that. This, I, 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 and I, where I took the, the symptoms from, because they were talking about other, they were talking about aortic injuries and other, as, um, like other branches of, of the aorta, for instance, you know, the, the left subclavian, the innominate, okay? But if you have a descending, and this is where you're going to see most of them, the majority. I, I can tell you I haven't seen at least in a trauma situation, I, a fresh trauma situation acutely, I haven't seen any of the other injuries other than the descending thoracic aorta. So that is very important. And you will, as we discuss the scenario, you will see, you'll see how that plays. Your chest x-ray is going to show you all of these signs and you can read through all of these signs, okay? And the textbooks talk about these signs and you should probably um, know these signs. You should probably memorize these signs for your exam. The one sign, I, I can tell you, I have seen mediastinal widening, that's the one sign that you're going to see, at least in an, in an, an anti-grade fashion that you can say, look, this chest x-ray has a widened mediastinum, we really need to get a CT. Most of the other signs, you are gonna be looking at them retrograde, okay? After you've seen your chest x-ray, you notice none of these signs, you go and you do your chest, your uh, CT chest, and now there's an aortic rupture, and you're looking back at the chest x-ray, trying to dig out these signs. So the one very important sign is the mediastinal widening. The other one that I've seen is obliteration of the aortic knob. But uh, frankly, uh, it's, I haven't seen much of the others. But you should, you should definitely know them, because they're still mentioned in the books. The management is extremely important. You need to manage the blood pressure of these patients. You don't want them to be hypertensive because why you do not want that intra-aortic pressure to increase and you don't want that, that um, aorta to rupture. So the change in the pressure over the change in time is extremely important. This is a concept that you have to remember. This is another guideline by ESA. Now they made a strong recommendation. Like a strong recommendation is almost a standard practice a strong recommendation that, um, um, uh, uh, pardon me, this was a condition recommendation that, that the patient should be managed by um, maintaining their blood pressure on the, lower, on the lower side. The strong recommendation was actually for a CT or a CTA is as, as good as an angio. That was a strong recommendation that you really don't need an angio you, you can make the diagnosis and plan your surgery based on a CTA. Again, it's going to depend on your, the preference sometimes of your vascular surgeon, but there is a strong recommendation that a CTA is, is good enough. For the treatment, um, you could do endovascular repair, you could do a surgical repair. And again, there is a strong recommendation by EAST. Um, endovascular repair is better than surgical repair for patients who are good candidates for endovascular repair. Surgical repair, you are going to do it through a left postulateral thoracotomy. That's for your descending aorta. The other parts of the aorta, obviously, you're going to, to look at how they branch from the midline. You know, the ones that are towards the midline, you're going to handle them with the median sternotomy 
your branches that come off the aorta and with, with um, the suitable cervical uh, incisions. Um, that patient, just to, to finish that scenario, so that patient was admitted overnight. We knew that he has an aortic rupture. He had the left hemothorax. I placed the chest tube in him uh, that night, was totally awake, aware, uh, alert, uh, very pleasant person. You hardly hear thank you from a trauma patient um, who was thanking us all night for managing him. We did alert the CT surgeon, um, and he said he will do this first thing in the morning as long as the patient is stable and we're managing him uh, with um, beta blockers to try and maintain his blood pressure on the lower side, and we, we did that fine. Uh, I, I, I wish I have his repeat chest x-ray. You can literally see the mediastinum encroaching onto the lungs, and then the last chest x-ray that we did, there's like the mediastinum just took over the whole chest x-ray. So you can see the, the uh, rupture expanding. The hematoma is expanding. Patient remained very stable, was taken to the ward the next day, um, around six in the morning. Um, the patient you know, was, uh, was draped, um, surgeon was, uh, was scrubbed, everybody was ready to, to operate. And actually, sadly for him, he was a 28 year old, very pleasant guy. He ruptured on table and he died and no one could save him. So, it's you, patients either stable or patient is ruptured and dead. There is no hypotension there. Um, um, should we take questions or before, are we? Yeah, before we move on to the next scenario, uh, there's a question about why don't we start corticosteroids to prevent cardiac tamponade? So that was one of the questions. Um, and then the second uh, question, um, was about esophageal, uh, I guess, injuries. Um, the person wrote esophageal lesion, but I mean, they probably ask about esophageal injury. Are we going to talk about esophageal injury to later? Esophageal injuries, yes, we're, that's coming. Okay, so we'll leave that question when you talk about that section. Um, I'm not so, sure about the question about the corticosteroids for cardiac. Yeah, I mean, um, the, the question is that uh, why don't we use uh, corticosteroid for cardiac tympanate? Yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm not sure what capacity. I would like to know more exactly. about Exactly. I think, I mean, there is no role for, for corticosteroids for a cardiac tympanate in the setting of trauma, um, as far as I know, uh, especially if it's, it's um, acute and life-threatening. Um, and you need time for steroids to actually work. Um, but I don't know if you came across them. No, no, there's nothing. Okay. So um, we can proceed to our uh, third case scenario. So um, a male patient is uh, in his 20s, um, and this happened recently. Uh, he's a stand of fall. His GCS was 15, and his all two sats were eight in the 80s. Um, the, the patient uh, was noticed to have bilateral subcutaneous emphysema. Uh, as you can imagine, you know, chest tubes, a chest tube was placed in him, it was intubated. They placed chest tubes in him, a chest tube after another chest tube. They were contemplating even placing the third chest tube and his sats were just like kept deteriorating and deteriorating. Um, so we'll come back to the management of this patient. This patient was, uh, his sats deteriorated so much that he required ECMO. Um, that, that, uh, part that you know was in a was in a couple hours and he was put on ECMO. Uh, he was stabilized for um, for a little bit. So I want to talk about tracheobronchial injuries. So these are infrequent, but they are potentially life threatening. And um, they're more common in the neck. 
blunt is more common in the distal uh, or penetrating, um, uh, sorry, um, they're more common in the neck because they're, the neck is not protected, obviously, by the thoracic, uh, by the thoracic um, chest. Blunt uh, trauma is more com common in the distal part, and penetrating trauma is more common in the cervical part. Um, there is sub-Q. Um, they can present with sub-Q emphysema or a pneumothorax, depending on where they are. Sub-Q emphysema usually the uh, upper part, pneumothorax is in the lower part. Uh, the diagnosis is usually done with the bronchoscopy. Um, th this tends to be uh, what gives you the, the best uh, diagnosis. You have to do bronchoscopy, you have to do it very, very carefully. You have to suction all, all that blood and mucus. Um, you can do a CT also. Um, and in a, in a penetrating trauma, if you have a trajectory, if your trajectory is away from the trachea, you can fairly assume that there is, there is no injury there. Um, operative repair is the mainstay. Uh, there is a role for non-operative management. Uh, if the lesion is less than two centimeters or non-transmural tears, uh, applications for a stent are limited. Um, when you're doing, you know, the, the just um, some key points about when you're doing the surgery, you obviously you need to secure the airway. Um, you can do this with a single lumen ET tube, fine. You don't need a double lumen ET tube. Uh, Interoperative management, depending on how devastating the injuries, you might need ECMO or you might need bypass. You will approach the proximal um, trachea or the proximal half through a collar incision and the distal half through a right posterolateral thoracotomy. And um, uh, the distal left main stem bronchus specifically, you might need a left posterolateral thoracotomy for that. So that's, it's extremely important to uh, pinpoint where your, where your lesion is. Um, you, you want to, you're going to uh, use interrupted, you're going to, um, uh, to suture mucosa to mucosa, you're going to use uh, interrupted um, absorbable sutures. Um, remember the blood supply obviously of the trachea, it gets supplied from the inferior thyroid and from the bronchial uh, vessels and very rarely um, you, you can achieve a significant length and you can bring, you can approximate the two edges together. Even if you have to resect part of the trachea and put it back together, you can, you can achieve that without doing anything major. You can achieve um, a, a reasonable length by just blunt dissection. The mortality is 3.5% to 21% and the morbidity is 19%. And, and um, a very disturbing complication is a tracheal stenosis in these patients. Uh, after repair. Uh, this can, can present as reactive airway disease. It can be mistaken as reactive airway disease. And again, doing a bronchoscopy or, um, or a CT or flow studies, uh, volume uh, flow studies can make the diagnosis. And usually the management, um, you will uh, try and, and balloon dilate uh, these areas. Um, but sometimes it, it might fail and you might need another surgery that's going to also um, uh, it can be fraud with another tracheal stenosis. So that's, that's, a very, um, that's, that's a very bad uh, complication to have. Uh, esophageal injuries, they're more common, again, they're more common in the neck um, than within the thorax. The blunt, uh, but mostly, blunt can happen, but mostly are penetrating. They're serious, but luckily they're rare. Uh, there's a high morbidity and mortality, um, especially if you wait for, or if you miss the diagnosis. Uh, because then the complication, the 
alsovigil-related complication plus overall complications, uh, they increase. And uh, that's why you have to make an expedient diagnosis. And the mortality is 0 to 22%. Um, in the service called esophagus, making the diagnosis, you can um, try in, from the trajectory, for instance, you know, if you have a, if you have a, uh, a, a CT or where, if you have like a, a, an evidence of um, a penetrating trauma, it can follow the trajectory. If you see a saliva exit in the wound, that's a, that's a pretty hard sign. Uh, but oftentimes, it's a patient presents with painful swallowing, uh, subcutaneous emphysema, and hematemesis. And only 18% with these signs have actual esophageal injury. So, so the diagnosis, making diagnosis or establishing diagnosis can, can be challenging. Um, then the thoracic esophagus, you can, these injuries can present with pneumothorax or hemothorax or a hydrothorax. You, if you look at your chest tube output, you can sometimes find um, uh, food. You can sometimes find, you know, what, what looks like saliva. So it's, it's important that you examine the chest tube output. Uh, making diagnosis usually is a contrast of geography. It's dynamic. Um, it, it's, uh, um, it, it has a high uh, sensitivity to make the, the diagnosis. It might be hard to obtain in an acute setting, and that's why um, surgeons and trauma surgeons are encouraged to, to do their own esophagoscopies. Um, flexible esophagoscopies are acceptable, but uh, it's better diagnosed with a rigid uh, esophagoscopy. Or you can use a CT with contrast, um, but it can make the diagnosis, but remember it's, it's static, it's not like a, a contrast esophageography. Um, to, um, to try and, and, and um, just, just some points about uh, the procedures or how to fix these lesions. In the cervical area, you will uh, do a left neck incision. Um, you need to visualize the entire mucosa. Remember that the esophagus has a mucosa and it does, it does not have a serosa. It has uh, uh, muscular layers. It has a longitudinal transverse muscular layer. So you need to visualize the entire mucosa by excising the muscular layer. Make sure that you're looking at the mucosa. Make sure that you approximate with interrupted absorbable, um, absorbable sutures for the mucosa or interrupted absorbable or non-absorbable for the, for the um, muscular layer. If there's no identifiable injury, you can drain and, and um, give antibiotics. That's, that's fine. Put the drain, give antibiotics, get out. And um, for intrathoracic part, usually uh, through a right thoracotomy, you debride the devitalized tissue, you buttress the repair, and usually your, your buttress uh, would be a pedicled intercostal muscle. Um, uh, the same, actually, uh, I, I forgot to mention this with uh, tracheobronchial injuries to, to try and avoid a bronchial stump leak. You want to also buttress in those situations with um, a, a pedicled intercostal muscle or a, a piece of the pericardium in the, in the situation of, uh, of the trachea. Here, you'd, you'd buttress with uh, a pedicled um, intercostal muscle and you would do wide intestinal drainage. So usually the, the teaching is you, uh, you want to debride the devitalized, you do a primary repair, you buttress with uh, muscle and you do a mid, mid, just wide mediastinal drainage. In the distal or the GE junction uh, part, uh, you will do a six or seven interspace left posterolateral thoracotomy, um, or you can approach it through a laparotomy if you have, um, or a thoracobdominal incision. So, um, 
if it's if your injuries are still within the distal thoracic part, you could do it with um, a thoracotomy. If you have um, uh, if you have other uh, injuries within the within the abdomen, you could do um, a laparotomy. And you would you can it's acceptable um, to do a damage control if your patient cannot tolerate the procedure. You can do damage control with a T tube. Or you can do a retrograde um, esophageal drainage if you have a devastating injury to the stomach and the GA junction, because these are not going to be amenable for a T-tube. Um, and remember the blood supply also, it's, it's important blood supply to the esophagus. Um, it's it's at uh, different levels. Um, you have the thyroid vessels and then you have the bronchial um, and, and the aorta, and if you have the left gastric, depending on whether you are talking about um, superior, middle, or inferior part. Um, so we so, have one question for the esophageal uh, injury. Um, I'm just gonna stop uh, you here for a second, uh, Dr. Heba. Um, so um, the question said, and I'll, uh, I'll read it for you because I, I don't think it's very clear, but uh, maybe you could understand it. If there's an esophageal injury from a penetrating chest trauma, um, uh, a, sh a shot, I guess a gunshot, what is your advice if that wasn't seeing on the first look and the patient has hemodynamic instability and in a CT chest control, we found it, what do you do? Do you repair immediately with a suture or put a chest tube on the injury or another alternative? I'm sorry, I didn't follow you. So there is a chest, there is a gunshot wound? So gunshot wound, uh, gunshot wound, uh, and it says it's not seen in the first look. I don't know if that means um, they scoped the patient or not. I'm not clear actually about the question, um, but, and it says instability. Um, if, so if the patient, so we could say maybe esophageal injury with hemodynamic instability, um, and then do you control it with a chest control? Oh, okay. You, uh, yeah. Sorry, chest CT control. Uh, the question I said, it's not really clear. I think it needs to be rewritten again, yeah. but uh, we're trying yeah. to pass well, on what they well, have. You feel, and this is where the, where the, uh, the damage And I guess they ask if you immediately repair it yeah so if you um okay I, I see what you're saying so again it's going to depend on the level of the injury it's kind of easier if you if it's something that you can bring out from the neck but this is this is where the damage control part that i talked about comes in you can damage you can just do a damage control and like a stick a g-tube in in that area and bring it out and just make sure that you drain the, the mediastinum widely, put a chest tube in. If the patient is hemodynamically unstable, I'm, I'm really not sure what they mean by the first look, that they explore the patient, I, what, what, what's a first look? But if the patient is hemodynamically unstable, it's, um, and he's not going to tolerate, uh, as you can see, these are extensive procedures. He's not going to tolerate that procedure right there and then. Um, you can do damage control um, with a T-tube or retrograde esophageal drainage, depending on the damage that's also sustained, where, where the injury is and if there's um, a concomitant damage to the stomach, and then you drain the mediastinum. So that's, that's what I would do if the patient is, is unstable. And then you come back, you resuscitate the patient. The patient might not even live. So um, 
you resuscitate your patient and if they, they tolerate that, as long as you have wide drainage, it should be okay to control the, the contamination in the sepsis and then you can bring the patient back. Do we have any other questions? Uh, we have another question about uh, what's your preferred approach toward a transmediastinal penetrating um, trauma? Transmediastinal? That patient is going yeah. to transmediastinal. Yeah, that patient yeah. is going to be very unstable. So I, this is a left anterior lateral thoracotomy. This is a this is an thoracotomy. This is probably going to be extended to a clamshell. Okay. So yeah. So and uh, so the the choice of so no more questions. I think we can move on for the next step. Sure. So I just I just wanted to mention one important point. A left anterolateral thoracotomy is chosen because it's it's really a very easy and versatile uh, versatile procedure that can be extended easily to the to the other side. So if the, your patient is an extremist, that's that's a procedure that you that you want to do. It it can happen. It has happened to me before that the patient who we knew that was a stab wound to the heart and we took him to the OR and he arrested in the OR. But remember, we were scrubbed, we were ready to go, and we did a median sternotomy. But I would not advise it outside of the OR. And, and if you, um, you're going to be invariably very much faster with an anterolateral thoracotomy than you would be with a median sternotomy. And I would not attempt a median sternotomy anywhere outside the OR. So uh, if, if you want to be fast, and a left anterolateral thoracotomy extended to a clamshell. Uh, okay, our last but not least, our diaphragm injuries. Um, blunt diaphragmatic injury account for 1-7%, penetrating are 10-15%, uh, 75% are left-sided, and um, they can present with acute symptoms that are related, uh, they can present in, in, in three phases. So acutely, um, that's between the, the injury and, 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 and the recovery period. Uh, patients can have symptoms of, that are related to associated injury, um, which are it could be like respiratory compromise, or a patient can be in shock, or they can have symptoms that are related to that particular injury, shoulder pain, epigastric pain, uh, vomiting, dyspnea, absent breath sounds, bowel sounds in the chest. There is a latent period where it becomes an incidental finding on an imaging. Patient is walking around basically with the injury and he doesn't know that he has, an, he has that injury. Uh, or the patient can kind of start suffering from symptoms like dyspnea. It's very vague symptoms, nausea, vomiting, dyspnea, um, or, or he has like early satiety. So it, it's kind of, uh, you're kind of wondering what the patient isn't really, is not too bad, but he's not feeling, he's not, it doesn't feel right either. Or it can present in an obstructive phase, and this is where a patient can have um, complete um, cardiovascular collapse because now you have your colon, you have your stomach that's sitting up in the chest and basically extend, effectively becoming a, a tension pneumothorax. Or um, now we have, there is like a strangulation of these organs and they have perforated. Um, you need to take a very thorough history. That's, that's very important. Um, chest x-rays, there is a sensitivity of, um, for the left side, 27 to 62%. On the right side, 18 to 33%. Um, there, we all have seen the, the famous chest X-ray of the, the, the um, NG tube, basically in the left side of the, of the chest or the stomach, 
with its contents and the, there's contrast there in the left side of the chest. If you see that, you're lucky. That's that's pseudonomic. You, you don't need any anything further than that. But not always you're going to see that. So you might need to proceed with, with a CT of the chest and you can, for blunt trauma, the sensitivity is 71 to 100% with specificity of 78 to 100% and for penetrating, it's sensitive at 7% of the time and specific 72% of the time. And you're, you're looking for a breach in the diaphragm, you're looking for something that's sticking through the, through the diaphragm and an organ that's sticking through. Um, uh, there is discontinuity of, of the diaphragm. So these are some of the signs or thickening of the diaphragm. MRI can be used. I, I, I personally, uh, I think it has a lot of limitations in an acute trauma setting. And ultrasound, by doing a fast, you can also, you're looking for similar um, findings to what you're seeing in, on the CT, plus the decreased excretion of the diaphragm. Um, for instance, during breathing, you can notice that on the ultrasound or a sliding of the, of the liver. Um, you can also diagnose with thoracoscopy and laparoscopy, and this is this is something. This is another guideline that just came came out, uh, 2019, diaphragmatic injuries um, by by East, and they actually evaluated um, laparoscopy in the diagnosis of stab wounds, thoracoabdominal stab wounds, and they found that they um, the outcomes were better with laparoscopy, and they conditionally recommended that laparoscopy be done for these kind of injuries over uh, CT. Um, so how are you going to repair these injuries uh, acutely? You will either need, use a, an O or a, a one, an absorbable monofilament. You do interrupted figure eights or horizontal mattresses, depending on how big your de defect is. Um, chronic, um, in chronic um, injuries, you can repair them through the thorax or um, the abdomen. Um, for the thoracic um, uh, approach, you can do a thoracoscopy or you can um, do an open procedure through the seventh or eighth intercostal space and use a posterolateral approach. Um, they were primarily, you can primarily close these defects um, if they're up to eight centimeters, or you can use a PTFE patch, a two millimeter thick, thick PTFE patch if they are uh, bigger than that. The mortality is 18 to 40% and the post-repair complication rate in blunt trauma, again, it's higher, uh, 60%. This is usually because of the injuries, more injuries are associated with blunt trauma. And penetrating trauma, it's 40%. So um, EAST has found that for left thoracoabdominal stab wounds, um, um, laparoscopy is more superior that repairing them with these wounds with laparoscopy uh, versus thoracoscopy, it's, it's the condition recommended laparoscopy over thoracoscopy for these injuries. They conditionally also recommended that um, the diaphragmatic injuries, whether they're blunt or penetrating, they get fixed through an abdominal approach, not a thoracoscopic approach. These are acute injuries that I'm talking about. Um, and for a, a right-sided diaphragmatic injury, they actually recommended non-operative management over operative management. So you can leave them alone. And um, they could not make recommendations if for uh, thoracoscopy or laparoscopy if you have a herniated uh, viscera. So this is, this is in the chronic situation. If you read the textbooks, they, tell, they um, advocate for the thoracic approach. Uh, because they feel that you need to break down this in, this um, 
Um, defect has been going on for a long time. There's a lot of uh, endothoracic adhesions and it's better to address these from the thorax to try and break down these adhesions. And uh, we have reached the conclusion of our lecture and we can, uh, I have the questions up here. We'll yeah, we can, we can start the poll, but there's one question if I may, uh, we have one question from the audience. We'll take this last question and then we'll start the poll. Uh, so uh, bl uh, for blunt chest trauma patients with the recurrent subcutaneous emphysema requiring high ventilatory setting, what is the best step to take the diagnose, uh, uh, what's, the uh, what's the best step uh, to diagnose the patient? That's the first part of the question. And then uh, in case of negative bronchoscopy uh, and OGD, what can be done further? And where is the injury? So blunt chest trauma and persistence of cutaneous emphysema. I'm sorry, you're just breaking up. Uh, yes, yes, requiring high vent uh, setting, which, which indicates that the patient is in the ICU intubated and ventilated or mechanical ventilation. So I would. So I what would, is the best step to take diagnosis? Yeah. Yeah. So I would. I would really suspect that this is probably. Um, this is a, a major uh, bronchus injury, like a tracheobronchial injury, because you can you can have such injuries from from the lung, um, but unless you really have like a big laceration in in the lung, it wouldn't give you that that much amount of subcutaneous emphysema. So the bronchoscopy itself that you do, it's very important and that you have to be extremely thorough with your, with your bronchoscopy. That amount of air is, is probably coming from the tracheal, you know, laryngeal tracheal bronchial complex. Um, it's very important that when you do your bronchoscopy, because remember this patient is intubated, you need to make sure that you're looking, you need an expert to do your bronchoscopy, first of all. So somebody who does this every day, who knows what they're looking for in a trauma situation, who, who knows that, because sometimes it could be, uh, it, it might not appear like as a full thickness lesion um, and you can easily miss it because of hemorrhage. When you're, when you're doing your bronchoscopy, you need to make sure that you remove or you pull back your, your um, uh, endotracheal tube and you look behind your endotracheal tube because you can easily miss, miss the injury. So these are, these are very important um, uh, steps that you, that you need to, to suspect in, or you need to do in these patients. So, because usually your bronchoscopy is, is pretty good. Um, you can, depending on whether this was, again, um, blunt or penetrating, if it's penetrating, you can try and delineate your trajectory, um, but, it's, uh, somehow you, you, you really need to, to um, make sure that you have done a very, a very thorough exam. And these are some of the steps that you, that you want to take. Okay. And um, for a negative bronchoscopy and OGD, what would be further? What other tools we can do or steps to diagnose or identify the cause of injury? So if you have a negative, uh, so you've done a negative bronchoscopy and, and, and your EGD. So are, are you talking here about, uh, am I hearing like a tracheoesophageal fistula or, or uh, because, because I'm uh, I mean, I mean, these are, this is a general question. And, and sometimes okay. when people ask a question, maybe they have a 
you know, some uh, clinical scenario that they came across. Yeah. So, how, yeah. So maybe we can move on. Would you like to take the question? Yeah, I, I was just going to say, um, you know, you can, you can definitely do your bronchoscopy um, and you have done your EGD and I'm assuming that both of these are negative. Again, you can do like an osoph uh, um, uh, osophagram. It's like we said, it's, it's kind of more, if we are suspecting that there's like a lesion or, or something like in the esophagus, an esophagram would be like a further step to, to take. A CT of the chest would be another step to take. Um, a CT with contrast would be would be another step. Great. Um, so we're going to move on to the first question uh, in the poll. Uh, this um, this question. The first question is: Which injuries are considered life-threatening, requiring immediate intervention? A. Tension pneumothorax and pericardial tamponade. B, cardiac contusion and rib fractures, C, clavicle uh, fracture and pulmonary contusion, uh, and D, pneumomediastinum and subcutaneous emphysema. Does everyone have the poll up? Can you guys see the poll or not? Are we happy voting? We're up to uh, almost 50% of the voters. The votes are. Okay, that's good. Uh, so we have a total of five uh, questions, and then as we uh, uh, finish, we'll, we'll give every question about a minute because we're running later out of time. Um, so uh, we're at uh, we're at about one minute now. Uh, we'll uh, we'll end the poll and go on with the next question. So please um, try to answer as fast as you can. So we get closer to 100 uh, um, answers. So 94% thought it's a tension pneumothorax and pericardial effusion. 2% said it's a cardiac contusion and rib fracture. 1% clavicular and pulmonary contusion. And 7% pneumovidistinum and subcutaneous emphysema. So the answer, Dr. Hela? Uh, the answer is A. If life-threatening, requiring immediate intervention, these, are, these, these two can kill the patient right away. Okay, great. So we'll take the um, uh, we'll take the second uh, poll. Uh, the second poll is uh, starting now. So please answer uh, your other questions. Which patient would benefit most from an emergent thoracotomy? Um, a, a 48-year-old patient with gunshot wound to the back who lost vital signs upon arrival to ED. B, a 12-year-old patient with traumatic asphyxia with CPR in progress for the past 15 minutes upon arrival to, e to the ED. C, 16-year-old patient with a traumatic amputation of knee arm with CPR in progress for five minutes. Or D, a 19-year-old patient with a stab wound to, uh, to the chest who arrived with fixed and dilated pupils. 
I think the audience already have a, a peek at the first two questions uh, with the slide that you have. Uh, so um, let's hope that they will be uh, answering this fast. So we have up to 55 so far. Okay, um, so 75% um, so uh, have answered uh, A, which is a 48-year-old patient with a gunshot wound to the back who lost vital signs upon arrival. 10% um, and 10% for the other two B and C and 7% for D. Dr. Hiba, the answer? So the answer is A, and I just want to comment. Uh, a 12-year-old, who's uh, it's he's, he's young, he's, he fits the right age, but an asphyxia is not going to, an ED sarcolum is not going to help an asphyxia situation. Um, the 16-year-old, uh, th that's a traumatic amputation to the arm. That's the upper extremity. So cross-clamping the aorta is, is going to do nothing there. Um, and then a 19-year-old with a stab wound to the chest, th this is fixed and dilated pupils. So remember the, the signs of life with, that we talked about? He didn't give you the CPR time, but he's, he's telling you that the patient has no signs of life. So you, you wouldn't attempt such a devastating procedure on somebody who has no signs of life. So the answer is A. Okay, great. I'll uh, launch now the third question, Dr. Mohammed. Yes. Can we see the third question on the slides, uh, Dr. Rahiba? Uh, yes, I do. Do you want me to read it? No, he's going uh, to no. read the question. Okay. Can we see the uh, question on the slide show? Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, let me see if I can. Yeah, there you go. Okay. Uh, so a nasogastric tube was inserted in a trauma patient, a follow-up chest radiograph, shows abdominal contents in the chest cavity. The nurse should be suspicious of A, is it a diaphragmatic rupture? B, a chylothorax? C, a pleural fusion? Or D, a tension pneumothorax? Give you guys 30 seconds. We're already 50% uh, in. Um... So we have a great attendance today, about 150 plus, about 150 participants. And so far we have around 145 actively in, or 143. Um, and the answer so far, we have up to 98 people answering the questions. Now we have 100, um, 100 participants who answer. So I will be ending the poll now um, as we see the answers.
So we have 88% said it's the pragmatic rupture, 10% uh, said it's a tension nemo, 5% said it's a pleural effusion, and 3% said it's a, it's a chylothorax. So Dr. Hiba, the answer? So abdominal contents, guys, remember that it's a very famous um, chest x-ray. Abdominal contents in the chest, that is not normal. There is a connection, an abnormal connection between the chest and the abdomen, and that's a diaphragmatic rupture. Okay, <laughs> we're launching the fourth question now. Fourth question, uh, what is a significant nursing intervention to reduce morbidity in the patient with rib fractures? Is it A, aggressive pulmonary toilet, B, monitoring supplemental oxygen, C, application of sequential stockings, or D, administering cough suppressant medication? So you have over 50% voted so far. Uh, votes are coming in. And um, I think that would leave us with one more question um, to um, conclude our session tonight. Um, We have the poll answers, Dr. Asma. Okay. So, 30% uh, of you guys, aggressive pulmonary toilet, 46% monitoring supplemental oxygen. 8% application of sequential stockings and administration of cough suppressant medication. So remember, refractures, they're painful. Um, you want to decrease the morbidity for these patients. You want them to expectorate, to breathe deep, um, and you want to control their pain. So aggressive pulmonary toilet is the answer. Perfect. So launching the last uh, poll, so please question vote. Number, what is the immediate management of tension pneumothorax? A, chest tube placements in the seventh intercostal space. B, place a third sided, a three-sided dressing over chest tube sites. C, needle thoracosynthesis in second intercostal space. Or D, ED thoracotomy. So we have up to 68% so far votes are in. We're close to 100 uh, voters. Um, so we will be sharing uh, the answers in the next few seconds. All right, so uh, we have 90% said needle 
autoacusis diseases in the second intercostal space. 6% said chest tube, 2% uh, said uh, place a three-side dressing over the chest tube, and 3% said edithyrocotomy. Okay, so um, the right answer is, is C, obviously. Uh, you want to immediately compress as soon as possible. There's no time to place a chest tube, so A is not right. Uh, we're not talking about an open chest wound, so B is not right, and you do not, you do not, you do not do an edithyrocotomy for retention in thorax. All right, I think uh, that was the last uh, question uh, for us uh, tonight. Uh, I'd like to uh, thank Dr. Hiba um, today for uh, joining, joining us in this uh, session. Um, we have learned uh, a lot and uh, reviewed uh, a, an important scenarios uh, into um, chest trauma, how to diagnose them, how to investigate them, how to uh, manage them as well. Uh, and um, so I thank you again for this uh, terrific uh, lecture. Um, and thank you everyone uh, for joining us uh, today, Dr. Mohammed. Uh, thank you all. Thank you, Dr. Rahibah. This was very informative. Um, if you guys have any questions, you guys could email us. Uh, Dr. Rahibah, do you have any ending remarks from your side? No, I just want, would like to uh, thank you guys for this uh, concerted effort. It's, it's uh, very commendable that you're, you're doing this um, during um, such kind of hard, um, unprecedented times. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you all. So everyone, just uh, make sure next uh, Wednesday is our next lecture. It will be about abdominal trauma. And we have a special guest, guest from Oman, Dr. Abdullah. Al-Harthi. So hope to see you all soon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.